Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. And, uh, you know, we are doing this on video. Uh, so if you're listening to this, uh, you know, in your car or somewhere else, I can see Anthony now as we talk. Uh, and so I'm not just talking into a blank screen. And he does not look thrilled this morning. And I don't know if that has anything to do with the baseball team or if there's something else going on or what. But I have to tell you, I, I don't know. I think we're going to get a saucy Anthony Sanfilippo here in this latest episode. Yeah, I think so, Bob. Um, what has happened since we last spoke? And it's been a week. And I know we promised everybody that we would do two a week. But um, I guess we didn't know that there were some company meetings that were taking place. Uh, at the end of the week that uh, pr- precluded us from being able to record uh, following the Thursday debacle as we had originally planned. Um, but since we have last spoke, they lose two games to the Texas Rangers, which were an absolute embarrassment. They blow a game that was maybe the worst regular season loss of, of my lifetime. I mean, I can't think of one where it was more of an embarrassing ninth inning collapse then they, now they've had some where they've come back, which has been f- fun like that, and you kind of feel bad for the other team a little bit, but th- I've never seen them blow one like that. Um, then you have two days of misery and, and of, in rain and awfulness where you can't even go outside because it's so freaking terrible and cold in May, and come back for a doubleheader on Mother's Day, which is not a great day anyway, and at least they look good in the first one. You're like, all right, fine, that's good. All right, maybe, maybe you know, maybe they needed the time off. Harper has the big team meeting. You know, they get the first win, and then they come out in game two, and you knew it was going to be a bullpen game, so you knew it was going to be a little bit of a challenge. But if there was ever a game where you needed a lineup to come through, that would be it. And they looked as disinterested a lineup as I have seen, even more so in the last – Bob, even more than the last few years where we say it's frustrating and you watch them play and how come they can't hit. I, You know, they were only down a couple runs in, at a couple times in these games, in this game, and they just kind of went up there like, meh, we're going to chalk this one up. Chalk so this one up for a loss. Last time we talked, they thought we thought they had six games ahead at home. Yeah. Two with the Rangers, four with the Mets. Hey, four and two would be good. At the very least, you have to split. Then obviously uh, six games becomes five games, and they go a whopping one and four. Uh, they've still only won two series this season, and you talked about it. It's it is a shame that we were not able to record on Friday morning because. You know, you'd be a little bit hotter in the moment uh, following that debacle on Thursday night. You know, that was an all-timer. And when you consider the context, needing a win, off to a slow start, you come out, you're playing great baseball, you get the game you need from Aaron Nola, and to lose that game to that team in that situation, yeah, I mean, at the expense of uh, adding some hyperbole to the show here, that may be one of the, the worst loss in the regular season that, that I can recall. I, I, can't, I can't think of one more. The only other one and that I can even think of that even comes close, and I, and I think this one was worse. You remember a few years back, Hector Neris 
gave up three home runs. <laughs> yeah, to the Dodgers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> out west. But I mean, you know what? The, the thing that was with, with the Hector Neris game was that it was like boom, boom, boom. It happened, so and you fast. were out yeah. before you even and it never saw it coming. Yeah, and the other uh, and, this, and the other one was um, was it Biggio who hits the home run on Labor Day? As also that uh, yeah, Harry Callis says, oh, you know, no. he, he, gives the, he gives the line. He goes, but who? So what? Yeah, who exactly. Cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was, those yeah. are the only two that I could even come up with that I thought kind of were as gut wrenching, tear your heart out, you know, regular season losses in this team in, in the history of this team. At least, at least in my lifetime. And, and the thing that frustrates me the most about it is, is that you know, I probably wouldn't have been as as hot under the collar on Friday morning, maybe as you would be, I probably would have been a little bit more pragmatic about it in the moment. Um, just because I, you know, I could take, I, I tend to take things, I think a little bit more a big picture, a big picture more than, more than in, individual games in baseball. I have a harder time. I think you can, I think you could be more, um, what have you done for me lately and game by game in other sports, just because there's less, games played in baseball I, I think you can kind of get away from you know you get no hit all right no big deal you come out and you win the next game no big deal kind of thing you know or you get have a game like that you come out and you win the next game okay no big deal so I, I maybe in the moment I probably wouldn't have been as upset I'm more upset about it today <laughs> than I would have been I think on Friday just because of how it played out since and yes there were two rainouts in between and who knows how you know things would have played if, if you had your regular starters, if Eflin and Wheeler don't end up on COVID lists, right? I mean, you, know, you, got, you don't have to start Christopher Sanchez yesterday. So maybe things would have been a little bit different. But nevertheless, that's part of the game, right? I mean, that's part of what makes this – and to not have depth, starting pitching depth, and to hear the broadcasters making fun of it. Like the the, the, the Mariners called up a, a prospect yesterday, and they're talking about it in the game. Like oh oh you mean they have starting pitching in the minor leagues? I mean when they say stuff like that, yeah. that's that's a direct that's a shot at the team. I kind of put together this show. I said you know the last couple times we've just hopped on here and we just went at it. And I said let me try to figure out an outline of how to approach the the mess that this is Good because luck. this is an absolute mess. And we've already kind of broken off the outline. I never even really gave you an opportunity <laughs> to follow it. So let's just kind of go ahead. Let's start just keep breath here and. I guess we can kind of take a chronological approach to this thing, and let's just start quickly with with Thursday night. And, you know, the one thing that I will say about Thursday night is that it happened. It was horrible. There were multiple people who contributed to it, and the bullpen obviously was the primary culprit of an epic collapse. However, the Phillies did score seven runs, I believe, in the first four innings of that game, mm -hmm. and then went nighty-night for the last four, you know, last five innings, really, because then they had to come to the bat in the ninth. So, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. But anytime you hold a 7-1 lead that late, you have to win the game. It obviously comes back to the bullpen. And just to kind of contextualize further the ridiculousness of the of that loss and the nature of that loss, I don't know if you saw this or not, but ESPN put out a, a, a stat from their research department. The previous 330 times the Mets took a six-run lead or a six-run deficit into the ninth inning, they had lost the game. So they were 0-330 when trailing by exactly six runs entering the ninth inning. There were certain probabilities that showed that they had one-tenth of one percent chance to win that game entering the ninth. And I believe that I saw DraftKings at one point had the Phillies as much as 
minus 7,000 to win that game on live betting odds. So just an absolute improbable loss and just an I still can't understand it even four days later, but you hit the nail on the head. It's even worse knowing what we know now. So let's jump into yesterday. And I know that this show is going to be overwhelmingly negative and there's not much good to say when a team that has this payroll and these expectations are 12 and 16. They've won two series all season long. They are completely disjointed in almost every facet. Again, the offense went almost radio silent yesterday. So let's just get some positives out of the way now. Kyle Gibson outpitched, I think I would say. Sure, Matt sure. he did. In yes. game one. Kudos to him. He's been fantastic. Sub three ERA. Kyle Gibson has been one of the, the few bright spots of this team so far in the early going. 100%. Not just Kyle Gibson. I mean, when you really look at it, I mean, we talked about, you mentioned Nola briefly, but Nola has put together a string of really good starts. Um, Wheeler... Um, even though he's uh, on the COVID list and, and, and he's not quite giving you, you know, the, the, the 115 pitch game that he has, that we know he has in him, 120 pitch game that he has in him. Um, he's been really good his last couple of starts. Um, so when you look at that, you say, man, that's, that's three guys that are going right now in your starting rotation. I don't know how many teams in baseball can say that. So, I mean, yes, that, yeah. that is a positive. That's a big positive. And it's the one, it's like the one thing that like, you can kind of cling to and say, if they're going to figure this out in, in, a, in rapid fashion, that has to be part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, you look at Aaron Nola now, his last four times out, he's gone 25 and one-thirds innings pitched, and he has allowed a total of six earned runs. I mean, he's been really good. And if you even take his, his season numbers across the board, again, sub one whip, uh, I mean, 3-3-8 ERA, and, and really those first two starts were most problematic. So the last four times through the rotation, Aaron Nola has really been locked in for a little bit of what I would say a consistent period. You should feel good about that. Zach Wheeler, too, as you noted, has been very good his last few times out. Now, we'll see how long he's out with the COVID situation here. But, again, you can kind of hang your hat on those two guys. They're pitching the way that you expected them to pitch. The problem is, and I tweeted this out the other night, actually prior to Aaron Nola's start against the Mets, they are now 2-9 and nine in games started by Zach Wheeler or Aaron Nola, which is insane. I mean, and you can say, well, hey, listen, typically your best guys are going up against other teams' best guys. You know, it's, it's going to be a crapshoot, but you cannot put those two guys out on the mound 11 times and only win two games. I mean, there's no, no wonder, and there are plenty of uh, issues here and, and plenty of fingers to point, but you have to win when they're on the mound. Yeah, it's that simple. And not only that, Bob, you're right. You could usually make that excuse that you're playing against other teams' top guys. And I think with Nola, that's been the case this year. But let's not forget, Zach Wheeler is pitching out of the number five spot in the rotation. Right. I mean, and you know, as the season goes deeper, it, those it, those it matchups gets, tend to it get changes, right? Anyway. But I mean, he has yeah. who have Wheeler's matchups been against? I mean, he hasn't really pitched against a stud on the other side. When you really look at and, who he's pitched against, and and you know, we've talked about Aaron Nola on the show. I've I've been left wanting more from him. I've questioned sometimes the you know that that hammer mentality and and all of that stuff, but. When we say, hey, listen, they're 2-9 and nine when they, those guys get the ball. I mean, I know that it was a little bit shaky early on. Wheeler the first three times through. Nola really the first two times through. I, I'm sorry. At this point, you know, this is this is about the team and, and less about the, the actual pitcher. So, 
I mean, that is a huge, huge concern. Now, my initial point was about Kyle Gibson. Listen, I'll tell you something else. I loved, loved in yesterday's game. Sir Anthony Dominguez comes out mm-hmm. late, and, and he doesn't have it. Like, he can't find it. He's all over the strike zone, and you go, oh, my God. Like, they had this epic collapse the other night. They're going to do it again. They're holding a one-run lead. I believe it was 3-2. Dominguez comes into the game. There's two guys on before you even blink, and you go, he's got nothing. They're cooked. They're screwed. And he bears down and just finds it. And, I mean, just overpowers. Well, and, like, that's me. Like, hell yeah, man. Like, that's something to get excited about. What I thought, what I thought was good about Dominguez, the one thing about him in that moment, and you're right, I mean, he did, did bear down. But if you look at those two at-bats, he walks the first two hitters. Um he wasn't really missing badly. Like, he was right around the strike zone. And he's, like, really – and so you sit there and say, okay, he's not really far off, but he, he's got to find – he's got to find it quick. And I think he – I think that if the third batter didn't go as well as it did, that was probably going to be it for him because they had Alvarado warming up, and you kind of thought he was going to go lefty-lefty there right at that point. Um, uh, but, but, but Dominguez was able to, to, to rec- you know, find it and strike out the side – um, and really ramped it up. I mean, he found he found. I mean, obviously had him pitched in four days, so of course you can throw ninety eight, ninety nine uh, when you've had that kind of rest. But yeah, I mean, I, he wasn't. He didn't have it in the sense that he was not pinpoint with his control, but he was not so outrageously wild that you thought, okay, we got to get him the hell out of there. It was one of those ones. I was like, okay, let's see, maybe he can find it. So credit the pitching coach there. Uh, Caleb Cosman, I guess Girardi too, for letting him stay, keeping him in and let him uh, handle that situation. And, and similar to, to Dominguez was what we saw from Alvarado in the eighth. And again, I know he's a roller coaster. You never know what you're going to get, but he was kind of on the brink of flirting with disaster. He only walked one, but it was still a 24 pitch inning. There were a couple deep counts that he ran. And again, he was able to bear down, find it, get out of it, you know, and that unfortunately does not necessarily mean anything moving forward because it's like a coin flip every time he enters the game. But in a big spot in a game that they badly needed, especially in the context of knowing what was going to happen in game two and and really the way that they were set up in game two with, with Sanchez taking the ball, like the Phillies had to have game one once they got that lead against Max Scherzer. So the only thing I will say, and it's a shame that the expectation has been lowered to this point, but when you look at what the Phillies were entering Sunday with in terms of starting pitching matchups, they could have very easily walked away having lost two games. I mean, very easily. Now, that being said, I am not about to excuse what we saw transpire in Game 2. So if you have anything else nice that you want to say about this team, now's probably the time. The only other thing I can really think to to kind of bring to the table is you hear the Bryce Harper closed-door players meeting. This doesn't define us. We're going to bounce back. Okay, great. And Bryce Harper did a nice job in Game 1. Hits the home run early. Sets a tone. They get the second run on a Harper hit. Like, it's great to have meetings, but you got to back it up. And in game one, he did that, and it was an important setup. And so, you know, kudos to him. And if we're going to record for an hour today, I think we just got our two minutes of, of positivity out of the way. Yeah, I, I, that was the only other thing I was going to mention. It was Harper. And, and it was that, it's that that exact thing, is that if you're going to be the guy who, you know, wants to, you know, go hellfire and brimstone in the locker room and say, you know, wake the hell up, you know, we're better than this then you can't go out there and go 0 for 4 and strike out. You know, I mean, you got to go out there and be that guy, you know, who shows the team 
let's go. And and he did that. Much, much the way that he did in game two. Of yeah. <laughs> yes, by the way. Oh, so, yeah. But I mean, hey, game one, that was the important one, right? Had to get one. The thing that we've talked about on this show, and I've actually now reached out to a couple different players, and I've gotten conflicting answers from players on this. And I'd be interested to, to draw in your, your hockey expertise because I know that you're very plugged in and, and you've spoken to many players. You know, how real is urgency? Uh, how real is playing with with fire and energy? And we've had this conversation now multiple times, uh, you know, throughout the, the last three or four weeks here about how the Phillies just simply don't demonstrate juice, electricity, urgency on a consistent basis. And I talked to one player, uh, not a Philly, uh, but a current major league player who's told me that it's nonsense. It's a media-driven narrative that, if anything, you know, guys probably want to do better uh, when things aren't going well. There's a ton of urgency when they get into the box. And then that urgency leads to them pressing. And so when you press and you don't produce, it looks like you have no energy. It looks like you have no juice. And he said, that's the reality of it. I talked to another player, current player, who said, there's something to it. You show up to the park and you, you feel it. You know, you say like, today's our, our, he told me, our fucking day. You know, like, we're going to go get it today. Like, and, and there's just a certain zip that you have. And, you know, he said, so in that perspective, in that way, it is real. Um, what is your thought on this? Because, I mean, clearly you watch this team and you, you watch the, the one runs, getting shut out, just kind of slogging along. And you say they just don't have it, whatever it is. Bob, you've coached the sport. You, you, know, you know it's contagious, right? I do. Right? I know I mean, that for 16 to 18-year-olds. Yeah, I mean, it, you know? it's contagious. I mean, I mean seriously, if, if, if a team is hitting and you're passing the bat down the line, and, I mean, and you have like big innings, I mean, sometimes that's all it is, is it's all kind of like, all right, that guy did it. Now, I, it's my turn to do it. I don't want to be the guy that lets the, guy, lets the team down. I don't want to be the guy that makes the mistake. Like, we're all, gonna, we're all doing this. We're all pulling this rope together. Like, there is, there is an element to that. Now, it depends on how you break down urgency. I mean, really, when you, when you want to look at it, is there urgency, different types of urgency? There's an urgency within, within a game, in a moment, in, you know, the, 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 in the heat of the battle, so to speak. And I think that urgency is a little bit different from um, we've played 27 games. There's 140 left or whatever, 120, 15 left, whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and we've, you know, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta get it right right now or else we're done for the year. I think that that's a different kind of urgency, right? And I think it's a different kind of, and I think that that can hurt, that can hurt teams too, because you could be a team that's 12 and 16, right? And, and, and sit there and go, well, it's still only May the 9th. Yeah, we got time. And, but, but you might run out of time. You might not have the time that you think that you need to get back, okay? You might not have that time. We looked at it last year. I mean, last year's a perfect example. Last year was a team where we looked at that schedule and said, man, this schedule is going to get easy for the Phillies, and, and the Phillies are going to make, be able to make a run. And, and I think they believed that too. I think they looked at that schedule and they said, holy cow, we're playing a bunch of bad teams. We're going to be able to make that run. And so, But leading up to that point, they were very inconsistent, very mediocre, and like you know, you it was like they didn't leave themselves the wiggle room they needed, just in case there were error. There was error that came against that easier part of the schedule, which was going to happen inevitably. Look, bad teams win forty percent of the time, right? I mean, so so they didn't leave themselves that wiggle room. And I think when you look at it again this year, you get to there and say, well, we we have time to come back, and of course you do. Of course you have time to come back. But with each additional loss in April and May, that's one less game that you give yourself an opportunity to say. 
That's a mulligan later in the year. And that because of that, it's easy to get in that mindset that we have that time, but maybe you don't have that time. And, and I think so that's why I think it's real. That's why I don't think it's BS. I think that there is something to it. There is something to urgency, and there's something to avoiding it if you're a player when you look at when you look at the grand scheme of things that you maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should take each game with a little bit more urgency. There's no question that the way players look at a season, the way fans or media people look at a season differs. So if you're a player, you know, I have a job to do. Like tonight, win or lose, we're getting on a plane and we're going out to Seattle and we have another three games and, and we have to play better. And you just acknowledge that and you move on and you go about your routine and you're, you have a job to do. So I don't think you think about the storylines necessarily the way that, that people like you and I do or the way that fans would. But what I do find interesting is I feel like Phillies fans, right? Because it's been so long and there's so much pent-up frustration. It's like, this was supposed to be the year and you're supposed to be playing better and you're not and I'm upset and are we really going to do this again this season? And it feels like the end of the world if they don't. And for players, it shouldn't feel that way, but I do have a question for you. Yeah. And I wonder this. Yeah. If you go back, and I know that there have been high payroll teams that make a lot of money, that play really well, and they win championships, and so you can't just do a straight equation of dollars to motivation or hunger. But when you watch the Phillies play, they showed up at the park yesterday. Did they want to win two games yesterday? If you asked anybody in that clubhouse, hey, you want to get two against the Mets today and win this series? Everyone would have said hell yeah, right? Mm -hmm. I just wonder... You bring up, and you can tell me I'm nuts, but I, I've, I've just wondered this, and I'm not accusing them of this. I'm not saying that this is the reason, but is there something to the fact that this clubhouse is primarily composed of hired guns that are making a lot of money? And just bear with me for one second, and then I'll let you either say, yeah, there's something to this, or you can dump all over it. Bryce Harper this season, he's going to pocket $27 million. JT Realmuto, $24 million. Nick Castellanos, $20 million. Kyle Schwarber, $19 million. Aaron Nola has been paid $15.5. Gene Segura, he's going to pocket $14.85. Uh, let's see, Corey Knable's a $10 million player. Let me scroll down to the IL here real quick. Zach Wheeler, $26 million. Didi Gregorius, $15.25. So we've got a lot of players on this roster that are making eight-figure salaries none of which have really come up together and rose through the ranks of this farm system, so there's really no cohesiveness in that way. I know that these things are a little bit different, but does the fact that there's not really this like building together, playing together, coming up together, we want to win together, we, we've got each other's backs, we're going to show that we're the next group that can do this, that's not a part of this equation. And hey, yo, we want to get paid. Let's build our legacies to make sure that we get paid. That variable's not in place for a, a vast majority of these players. Does that have an impact on what you see and their attitudes and how things play out? Maybe even more so than Joe Girardi. I, I think it does, but I think it does in a slightly different manner than the way you outlined it. I think it does, man. I think you're close. I think you're close. But what, to me, the problem is, is not necessarily that they're just – you know, guys who didn't come here together and, you know, they, they, you know, they don't have that, they don't have that connection and they're making big money already. And so what, um, I, I do get the sense watching this team that, that they like each other, that they want to win with each other, that they have, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of camaraderie in that locker room. I think it's, a, I think, I, it's, I think it's that kind of locker room. And so, so to me, whether, whether they came up together, which would be great. Um, but that the fact that they didn't, I don't think that that impacts it so much. What impacts it to me is this. Of all these guys that they've brought in, all these big money players, 
How many of them have ever won before? Kyle Schwarber. The only one. And the only one, and when you think about it, even the year that he won, he didn't play that whole year. He came back just for the playoffs and World Series. And, and yeah, he had a great World Series for, for the Cubs. But other than that, he's so he wasn't really part of the run. I mean, he was just a guy. I mean, maybe he wasn't hanging out in the clubhouse or whatever, you know, but whatever. But none of them have ever won. So is that again, like, and this goes back to the conversation I have with the player. Is is this a is this real? Because like I'd like to think that I've been around sports and I know sports and I'm a believer again and and I try to I try to disconnect professional sports from from youth level high school level sports but I do believe that when you win and you figure out how to win tight games that breeds a confidence that has a rollover effect. In fact, I wholly agree. Like I am a true believer in that. If you are young, you've lost you continue to lose and you have that one run lead, you don't know how to drop the hammer and say, I got it this time. You're waiting for something to go wrong. Mm -hmm. You're waiting to revert back to what you always know. Can that be true on a professional level? Yes. Yes, it can. And that's the thing. It's it's, it's like, you know, we how many times in sports do you, do you see a team that's like, should be better, but isn't quite better. And then they finally go get that guy or two guys who've won before. They bring it in, changes the clubhouse, changes the locker room, and all of a sudden it makes a difference and then they go out and they win. And it, it finally helped this superstar get their championship. Finally helped their superstar you know, do what they got to do. It happens nonstop all the time, every sport. It happened here if you go way back to 1980. I mean, that team, think about that, that Phillies team back then in the 70s. Um... They were good in 75, just missed the playoffs. 76, make the playoffs, get swept. 77, make the playoffs, lose in four games. 78, make the playoffs, lose in four games. 79, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, we stink now. We're a 500 team. And then they fire the manager, bring in a firebrand in, Dar in Dallas Green, trade for Pete Rose. And all of a sudden, 1980, they're a world championship team who had a tough road, who barely made it into the playoffs. They had to win a big series against their biggest rival in Montreal at the end of the season, who had to win the toughest five-game series in the history of baseball against the Houston Astros just to get to the World Series. We're 2-2 in the World Series and had to win a tough game five in Kansas City on the road. Though all those things you had to learn how to do. And think about what, you know when the 08 team, and think about guys like Rollins and Utley and Howard, all they said is they had to learn how to win. That they, they went through all those years in the early 2000s with Boa as the coach where they were close and close and close and they just couldn't get over the hump and just couldn't get over the hump. And then finally they had to figure it out and learn how to win and what, what made that happen. And it was bringing in the right pieces around them. Not necessarily, I mean, I'm not, I don't think they brought in anybody who had really won before, but I mean, they brought in the right kinds of people. You know, Gillick, I guess, was the guy who'd won before. That that's who they brought in. You know, yeah, and a guy like I know Jamie, like Jamie, Jamie Moore, Moore guy, been sure. around forever. Right, exactly. And, you know, exactly. Some hey guys, like this is how this goes. Right, exactly, exactly. So, but, but they had to learn. Know, but they had to learn. And so, the, yeah. to me, it's a matter of you could be as talented as you want. You could be the most talented team. Until you learn how to win games and win with consistency and how to overcome adversity, which is another issue. Then you're never you're never going to. You're only going to do it sometimes, and maybe end up being that 500 team that this team seems to be year in year out.
Well, what's dangerous now is when you have and, and you learn how to win. And and so now you look at the Mets, right? And we've talked and I think we have a little bit of a differing opinion on the Mets. I, I think that they're actually pretty good. You think they stink. And that's fine. I don't, don't think they stink. I just think that they're I just think that they're I think it's it's overblown with the Mets are. But I will tell you, you start to win games the way that you win on Thursday night. Like we're looking at this from a Philly centric viewpoint. You win a game like that, and then you start to feel like, yo, we're dangerous. Like we're never out of it. Like that is like you roll your eyes, but I mean that's that's a huge win. I mean that that's a huge win because not only again have you beaten the Phillies two out of three, you're now six and three against them. It totally t- changes the tenor of the entire weekend. But like we're saying, like oh, it's getting late early, it le- like leaves you less margin for error. What the Mets are doing is setting up a greater margin for error. And like I'm sorry, but you win a game like that, and you do you do feel like hey, next time we're down three in the ninth. We can do this. Like, we're always going to be in it. And, and whether or not that's true, I, I don't know. And I'm not telling you that the Mets are going to win 104 games this season, but it's a big win from the Mets perspective. Well, no, well, no, I, I, and I would sound like a hypocrite if I didn't agree with you there, Bob, because that's what I, exactly what I just said that the Phillies don't know how to do, right? And, and, that the, and that they have to learn how to do. And so, you know, the Mets doing that, you're right. That does make a difference. That does, that does breed that kind of confidence. Yeah, we can figure this out and we can do it. I just think that, they're, I think that their offense is actually not as good as the Phillies. Um, right. I mean, when you really look at the, this, the, these games that they played against them, I mean, they're not scoring a lot of runs. I mean, you had the one beginning, yes, in the ninth inning to come back and win. Um, uh, but even the series that they played last uh, week and a half ago, they didn't really hit the ball well against the Phillies. I mean, they just didn't happen. And, you know, they didn't look good. I didn't think they, they didn't look good against Gibson. Gibson pitched really well against them. Um, and you take away two Pete Alonso home runs, and what, what did they do yesterday against the, a bullpen? I mean, they, right. didn't, they didn't hit. I mean, they, they had two home runs is what they had. You know, and one of them is a result of, you know, a couple guys got on base for whatever reason. Or other. But, I mean, walks and walks were a problem. They weren't great pitch. They weren't, they weren't facing great pitching. But the fact of the matter is, is that they don't – that lineup does not scare me. And unless – to me, unless DeGrom can come back and be DeGrom. And then you have DeGrom, Scherzer, Bassett as, as, a, as a three – top three guys in the playoffs – yeah, and I also don't trust their bullpen. I, I you know, right. well, I, I just don't. I just don't. I think Diaz is and that's fine, and that's fair, and, and that's good. Uh, but they do wake up right now, twenty and ten in first place yeah. in the NL. Credit so, them. Credit I, them. Well, credit can them. only can only go by what I'm seeing and, and, right but, now. But Bob, you know, gonna, I'm going to say to you right now, it's the same thing. Like if you remember, like actually, we had these same conversations about the San Francisco Giants. Sure. And I said the same thing. I said, well, I just get they're, they're having a good year, and they're probably going to make the playoffs. Are they going to win in the playoffs? I don't think so. I, I don't see it. Now, granted, they ended up having to play the Dodgers, which was in the first round, which was something that nobody expected, right? I mean, but, so that was kind of a little bit different. They, maybe they go a little bit further if they don't have to play the Dodgers in the first round. But I don't know. I don't think they would have been the way the Braves were playing last year. Would they have beaten the Braves? I don't think they would have. I don't know. I mean, they did win 107 games, they though, did. and they're also one of the best teams in the National League again this year. So for, like, the purposes of what the Phillies are trying to chase after right now. I'm like, not trying. No, but, I'm, but what I'm saying is I'm if we're, if it, the, my point is what I'm, what I'm saying is, is the Mets remind me a lot of what the Giants were. Okay. And, and are they going to be a playoff team? Probably. Are they going to go anywhere? No. <laughs> Listen, that's, I agree. My, I that's how I feel about it. I don't know no. the team. I do know that their owner is insane, though, and probably is willing to make come July 31 or August 2 or whatever the trade deadline is this year. He might make that move or two that would send them into like oh my god territory. So we'll see. You mean like when we'll the Dodgers? When, you mean like when the Dodgers was... signed Raul Mondesi? I mean, um, right. uh, Manny Ramirez? I mean, uh, right. in, in, and in I know. Listen, I, mean, I get it. It, 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 it doesn't always matter that the best team on paper and all that. But I'm just, I'm just telling you, man. Like every week, it's like they're getting a little further away, and that's fine. And, 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 and the Phillies are a team that does not know how to win and, and, and has 
and, has all of these concerns. And I think that, I think I think that our discussion right now are two mutually exclusive things because yeah, I agree yeah. with you about the Phillies at, at right now. It's, it's it's not good, but at the same time, I'm I'm not sitting there saying I'm not saying. So what you're telling me is that basically right now would be it's good to be a Braves fan. I think that the Braves are still the best team yeah. in this division. Yes, I do. Yeah, not, and I don't yeah. think it's close. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair. I probably agree with that, to yeah. be honest with you. And in fact, I actually would say that part of the reason that the Mets are twenty and ten right now is because they've had the benefit of playing the Phillies nine times. <laughs> well, they're six and three <laughs> against them, right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah. there you go. That helps. Um, okay, so you know, here is a way to then transition into the second game, the most recent game that we had to watch of this team play, just absolutely excruciating baseball and. They come out in game two with a chance to win uh, the series, sweep a doubleheader, something that they had not done in their previous 26 opportunities, I believe. <laughs> like, uh, I think that what did I read yesterday was Corey Simon said that they've won or they've swept a doubleheader one time out of their last 27 opportunities, which yeah. is absolutely insane. Um, so here they come. They have an opportunity to, to win this game. And they start Christopher Sanchez. And I actually cannot kill the Phillies for starting Christopher Sanchez in game two as the 27th man because Smart. you have both Zach Eflin and Zach Wheeler right now on the COVID-related IL. You don't know when you're going to get them back. Joe Girardi, after the game yesterday, said he did think it was possible that you might get both players back at some point on this road trip, but you don't know. So given that, and given that you have to find starting pitching, moving up a guy like Ranger Suarez to throw that game, I know that there is an argument that could be made for it. And the argument is, you have to beat the Mets. But if you do that, you're going to leave yourself short at the start of this road trip. So, no issue there. I really don't have an issue starting Sanchez. And let's just break it down really quick, Bob. Because if you do sure. move up Sanchez, right? You, I mean, if you do move up Suarez rather than San, than start Sanchez, um, you can't start Nola Monday. He still right. needs one more day of rest. So Nola can go Tuesday. But now you would need they would have needed a starter for tonight. And you wouldn't have had Sanchez available because he was the 27th man being called right. up as part of a doubleheader. So now you can only call up somebody that's on your 40-man roster, or you could throw a bullpen game against the Mariners. Then you have Nola Tuesday, but then you don't know what you have Wednesday or Thursday because that's where the the gray area is with right. with these guys with with Wheeler and and with and with Eflin. Now, the good- and you're reasonably hoping you're reasonably hoping that one of these guys is able to come back by the time Wednesday and Thursday rolls around. Right, right. And then you won't maybe only need to have – you can know, recall Bailey Falter by that point. Obviously, he wasn't ready to throw, um, you know, on his day. I mean, they've been stretching him out, you know, to get him to, to, to be the sixth starter, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, we, you know, if one of them can't go, Falter will probably go later this week. But, I mean, that's why they had to do it yesterday. And it's not like, oh, my God, why, how stupid they should have thrown Ranger Suarez. They, they just couldn't because they would have really screwed themselves for this week. And you, you, you want to screw yourself for two games during the week just to try to win one? I don't think that that's a smart play. So there's two things, though, that annoy me after that, okay? No. And, and this is <laughs> – like, here we go, but, like – this didn't take long, right? The fact that they had to start Christopher Sanchez yesterday comes in part because they have absolutely no starting pitching depth. And boy, didn't we talk about this like last week, two weeks ago? At some point this season, the Phillies are probably going to need starting pitching depth. And you spend all of this money on offense. And that's great. We were excited. I was excited. I said, oh my, hey, look at this. You go through this lineup, there's no easy outs. It's going to be great. They're going to pound the ball. And it's going to help offset some of their deficiencies. 
But now here you are, you enter a spot where you're 12 and 15, you desperately need a series win, you have a brutal West Coast road trip coming up, you need a win. And the best you can do is use your 27th man because that's the only thing that makes sense from a roster standpoint. Because you didn't go out and add any starting pitching depth. And we don't have to lament all of the guys that were out there and name names and say, well, this would have been good, that would have worked. But my God, how can the average person sit here in the beginning of April, end of March, and say, I like the Phillies. They better all stay on the field because, God, again, there's no starting pitching depth here. And and they heard him yesterday. And now I don't want to be overly dramatic and say, oh, the Phillies' season is in limbo. They're at a fork in the road. But they are 12-16, and 16, and if they go out and lose, oh, I don't know, two out of their next – uh, or I'm sorry, lose five out of their next seven, six out of their next seven. That's a deficit where you start to say, okay, it's mid-May, but they're not coming back from this. Yeah. And that's what that was their answer to the, the, the problem they faced yesterday. And I don't think Dave Dombrowski's a bad GM. I, I think he's done a lot of good things here. You know, all of that stuff. But holy shit. Well, I think that he's been – I think that he's in a situation where – the warts had to be somewhere else. They couldn't be on the major league roster. The warts were on the major league roster the last few years, right? I mean, we looked at this major league roster the last few years and we're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that they're trying to win with this lineup. Oh, my God, I can't believe that they're trying to win with this bullpen. And they don't have anything in the minor leagues, right? So we, we know for, for damn sure that Matt Klintak screwed this team for a long time with the, the, the complete failure of the minor league system. So – the, the the point is is that if you're if you're telling Dombrowski you got to turn this around and he comes back to you John Middleton and says well guess what the only way I can do this the only way is I have to improve the major league roster enough to be able to compete and that major league roster in order to do that we're going to have to go over the luxury tax to do it that's the only way I can do it otherwise you're looking at a much longer time because I have to build up the minor league system which we don't have right um and so he does – Dombrowski does what he has to do to get a, a legit 26-man roster that's that's got depth, that's got major league players on it that you can pretty much rely on. But he still has to hide the warts somewhere. And the warts are they don't have the minor league depth to come up and play. And that's the issue. That's the biggest problem. So what do you do? What do you do? I don't, well, I, don't, I don't know what the solution well, it's, is. No, it's interesting. It's interesting from a, a roster construction standpoint. So they, they do the Schwarber deal first, right? Like that was their guy. Obviously, that was the guy they, they targeted and wanted the most. At least conventional wisdom would suggest that because the order of operations began with Kyle Schwarber signing with the Phillies. So forget the fact that he's hitting, you know, 211 this morning and hey, he's been okay. I don't want to I don't want to be overly negative just for the sake of being overly negative. But the luxury then was Nick Castellanos, who I have to be honest with you, I really like. I'm I'm a big Nick Castellanos guy, yep. and I think he's going to help this team win games, whether it's this year or not, I, I don't know. But I will say, going out and getting Schwarber and Castellanos kind of, you know, sends him over the tax. And I'm not saying that they could have been in the game for a guy like Carlos Rendon, but two years, $44 million, and you're looking at what you're spending on guys like Schwarber and Castellanos, and you go, hey, maybe just one of them would have been 
would have been okay here? And, and would a guy like Rendon been more valuable to them? Uh, in short-term contract, only two-year deal. Yes, you're paying 22 a year on a, a yearly annual value. But, like, if I could have right now Kyle Schwarber or Carlos Rendon, I'd probably have Carlos Rendon if I'm being honest with you. Um, and that's not to say I don't like Kyle Schwarber. I don't think that there was a need to bring him, you know, to try to fix the leadoff spot, which incidentally he's no longer hitting in. And I, like, I got it. I get it. And I don't want to play revisionist history well, after 28 here, games because here's it's my, so early. Here's my biggest problem. And, and, and yeah, you could, you could do that. You could look at it and, and, you know, hindsight be 2020 and all that. But I think this is a baseball problem more than it is a Phillies problem, Bob, in a lot of ways. Because we've gotten so we've fallen so in love with having these eight man bullpens, nine man bullpen, whatever the hell you want to say it is. Um we've no lo- we no longer have a long man in baseball. And I think for the longest time teams would would have a guy who would almost basically be your sixth starter, right? Who would be in your bullpen? And, you know, he would come in and throw, you know, three, four innings in a game if, it, if, if you're up a lot or you're down a lot, yeah. whatever the case might be. You're Right, well, whatever. But then, but then the case would be that, hey, if we need to get somebody into the rotation, that's the guy that we're going to go to. And, and when this team was successful, I mean, think back to, again, let's go back to that 08 team. It was Kyle Kendrick, right? I mean, he was never a good pitcher. Let's be realistic. He was never a good pitcher, but he served a purpose. Right. You know, he served a role where he kept you in a game for five innings and gave yeah. you a chance to win. Where, And I think that the sport has just gotten away from that. That doesn't mean that everybody has to, though. That's why I'm saying – so when you're saying I'd rather have Carlos Rodon, oh, I don't disagree with you. And in that case, maybe Ranger Suarez is yeah. your – is that guy who could rotate because back and forth. What you're saying and, – and I'm still in on Ranger Suarez. Don't get me wrong here. Like, I'm not trying to, like – throw guys under the bus that, that don't deserve it. I mean, right. Ranger Suarez, I think, is still a, a very capable sure. mid-rotation starting pitcher, but wouldn't it be nice to have him in that swing role the way that he was so valuable a year ago? Now, that being said, more so than even like, oh, the Phillies didn't go out and add another $20 million arm to the rotation is that there just is nothing. There is no, as you said, the Kyle Kendrick type of guy that you can slot in. Maybe maybe it doesn't require $22 million to build out your rotation depth, but like maybe a $5, 6000000 million investment would have been good there. Right. Because I agree. Instead, you get you get Christopher Sanchez and, and Nick Nelson one two trying to take home a game that they needed. Although I will say this, and this is interesting, did the manager view that game as a must win or as a game that they needed? Because after the game, he's asked, you know, and, and he starts by saying, and I just gotta tell you, I just it blows my mind. He says, Well, yeah, you know, anytime you, you win the first one. The second game is is there. Uh, okay. Like, come on, man. Like, and this goes back to the Joe Girardi conversation. And I know it feels like we're talking in circles, but I'm going to assume that people listening right now haven't listened to the first five episodes that we've done. And this is just the latest incident where you say, like, is that really, like, your mentality post-game? Like, just do me a favor. And I know that we fell into this, ca- uh, this, this trap with Gabe Kapler, but, like, Give me a little bit more than that. Say, like, it's disappointing that we did not win the second game. Like, it would have been big for our team. Yeah. We needed this one. This team has kicked our ass the first three times we've seen it. We had a horrendous, potentially season-defining, one of the worst losses in the history of a terrible franchise three days ago. Then we had to sit around on our hands for two nights, and we come back and we give you a one-two punch of Christopher Sanchez and Nick Nelson. 
give me something, man. Yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess because Girardi doesn't want to throw it on those two guys, and he shouldn't because it's not their fault. Right? Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's the thing. So he doesn't want to throw it on those, which is why I think he's trying to. You know, he's got to be more disappointed with the lineup, obviously, than, than those two guys. Well, I mean, one run and six hits. Well, I mean, two extra base hits. Well, and one of them was a meaningless well, Reese Hoskins double. And, oh, man, can we get to him in a minute? Well, let's, 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 say, let's say this, Bob, because here's the thing that really burns me up about the game, okay? All right, you, you know, you give up the, the two-run homer in the first inning. Okay, fine. Segura hits one, hits a solo shot, and it gets you back to 2-1. All right? And so it's 2-1 going into the fifth inning. I mean, you're in the game. I mean, Sanchez was fine. Uh, fine. It was Did fine. a mistake to Alonzo, and that was and, it. Uh, he was fine. You know, Nelson, we don't like. We Obviously, he was the guy who blew up the other night, and now he's... Can I just interject? This is a perfect time to say this. I was yeah. going to get to it. I promise I'll be quick. Nick Nelson looked at his splits here, and they go back, and they trot him out there for the third inning, right? Yeah. And I was ready to say, like, well, that was terrible. And he was clearly out of gas, and I think that anybody with eyes kind of saw it. It looked like he was really trying to get him that one-two combo through five innings and then take his chances late. Right. And I know the offense didn't hit. And I will say this. Joe Girardi manages with the data that's given to him prior to the game. I know it for a fact. Yep. He manages in pockets, they call it. He's given statistical matchups. He's given, you know... How many pitches can this guy throw? And Joe Girardi entered that game. No matter what was happening there, he was going through five innings there. He was going through that third inning with Nick Nelson. And I'll tell you why. Because if you look at his splits, when he goes 26 to 50 pitches before yesterday's game, he had only given up one hit and one run entering yesterday's game when he was between 26 and 50 pitches. And so he was entering that inning in the high 20s, Went through, I think he ended up with 44 pitches. He went into that saying, I have Nick Nelson for at least 50 pitches in this game. And that's why he sent him back out there. So when he went single, single walk, he was like, I can still get through five. I think he has more in his tank. And he's wrong. Yeah, I would have much rather, in all honesty, I would have much rather gone Sanchez another inning. Well, this is what I look at. I mean, I mean, look again, at I, I don't know what he had. You know, Maybe he was limited. But I mean, I, I would have gone another inning with him. And then going to, and then I, mean, I don't know if I would have gone to, even going to Nelson, but, but I mean, if, this if is what I, I love, to. right? So then you look at the box score, and you got, and I understand Sanchez has to start the game because he gives you a little bit more length. But you got Brad Hand for six million dollars a year throwing a meaningless eighth inning, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you had Uris Familia, who didn't throw. a... <laughs> yeah. These guys, you guys are making me crazy, but he didn't throw a pitch yesterday. Yeah. Where the hell was he at? You got Nick Nelson in a key spot in the game where he's clearly starting to bleed a little bit in the fifth inning. What are we doing? What are we waiting for on Yuri's Familia? Because he used Alvarado and Dominguez in game one. Didn't want to bring him back in game two. So, hey, you know, again, got to have someone close. And I get it. But, like, you you end up taking your two of your highest paid relievers. And they, they don't touch the ball in a meaningful way in a game that they should have been a little bit more aggressive with. And that is my problem. And in isolation, shit happens. One out of 162, mid-May. Injury concerns in the rotation. I get it. I get it. But, like, you got to show me something at some point. And it's just every single game, every single week, it feels like. And I feel like these guys are turning me into Angelo Cataldi right now. <laughs> this is like this, this is as frustrated that I have been watching this team, I think, in three well, years. Well, let me, let, me let, me, let me say this, Bob, because this, this is where I really got frustrated. Okay. They give up the home run. Now they're down. Now they're down. Okay. 5 1. It was at that point you knew the game was over. Yeah, yeah. There's no fight. There's nothing. There was because that's the thing. There was no desire to come back. 
every I, I kind of liked their approaches, or you know, game one, and even early in game two, I thought you know you had the the one even you know we we can talk, we're going to talk negatively about Reese Hoskins in a bit, but I mean you know you know you, you saw him take that one swing. You know, where, where he's not doing the big high leg swing, uh, leg kick now. He's just doing that little step. And he go, went the other way. It was a foul ball, but he was only fouled by like two feet. Like early in, you know, early in the game, that was when they were still in the game. You know, and so like before it's 5-1, you have guys trying to go the other way. Guys trying to hit the ball up the middle. Uh, Alec Bohm had that single that went the, the opposite way through the, through the, you know, through the shift. Like th- there are things that are were happening in those first two in the first game and the first part of the second game where you say I like the way that these batters are approaching this, and they'll figure it out. I mean Bassett's a good pitcher. Let's not forget that. I mean he's a good pitcher, and, you know, and and they were trying and and doing some things. Then they get down and it was almost like forget it. Everything we wanted to do goes out the window. They go up there with no approach. They're flailing at pitches. They're swinging at bad pitches. They go two for twenty after the second Alonzo homer. Two for twenty, okay. The one is the meaningless double by by Hoskins. Although it wasn't really that meaningless because I want to talk about that in just a second. Well, we'll get him going. He hit the ball. Well, no, 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 no. What I mean was was that was the one chance that they actually had to come back and, and do something in the game. And I think Girardi made a mistake there, and I'll get to that in a second. And the other one was a, was a, no, a meaningless single by Segura in the ninth inning. Other than that, that's it. I mean, they had no other hits. But in that so in that was I think it was the sixth inning. Hoskins hits the double, and then Segura walks. And then the Mets make a pitching change at this point, which I was a little surprised by because Bassett has been pitching well. And he goes to Chase and Shreve, you know, to go lefty-lefty against Bryson Stott. You have Camargo on the bench who could yep. play shortstop, who's a switch hitter, right? Why do, you, why do you leave Stott in that spot, in a clutch spot where you have runners on base and you're down, in, down four in the game and have a chance to come back still? I mean, you still have four bats in this game. You're only down four runs at the time. Like, come on, man. Like, that's a spot where you got a bat for Stott. Yeah, a guy who has not hit uh, at the Major League level this season, a guy who that, you know, you decided a couple weeks ago when you needed to win games that he was no longer warranted a roster spot or you didn't have enough confidence in him, I should say, anyway, to play him on a, on a daily basis. So then there, you you know, you don't make a move there, which is which is wild, and I agree with you, and it was on my short list of things that made me scratch my head yesterday. Because, I mean, if you get a, if you get the matchup there, and now all of a sudden you got Camargo going against going against Shreve, that's a good matchup there. Camargo hits lefties. Shreve is not necessarily historically great against righties. He's just okay. So maybe you get a hit there and you get a run. Maybe you only get a run. Maybe you only get one run out of it, right? Who knows? Maybe it's only one run. But it's but it's now you're all of a sudden you're within three. Right. It changes things. It changes the Big way you approach everything. Sure. You know the fact is, so, is that you don't get anything, and now the seventh, eighth, and ninth they they did nothing. They were just as bad swings as I've seen from some good player. Harper was terrible. Castellanos was terrible. His at bat. I mean everybody who bats. I mean, you could go to real if you really wanted to. You could go to real Muto there. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen for a chance at a home run thing. if you wanted to. If you really wanted to burn him early, right? I mean, you could have. It's, it just amazes me, like, when you watch this game, you know, unfold, and, and you talk about the, the mid to latter parts of it, but you come out in the first inning, you give up the two, and then you have an opportunity to tie things up right away. Reese Hoskins, I think, got, like, five strikes in that at bat and, and strikes out and, you know, end of inning. Yeah. And then in the third inning, they actually have a chance. This is the best scoring chance they had the entire game. Schwarber leads off with a single. Alec Bohm kind of reaches on an error. It was a tough play by Davis. He was moving left to, I guess he was moving right to left. Yeah. 
and kind of got caught in between first and second. Nobody out. Harper strikes out. Castellanos, I think, hits the ball pretty hard, but lines out. And then Hoskins comes up again and leaves two men on uh, base with with two outs, and you know, four guys left on base right off the bat. And it just I come back to Reese Hoskins, and like, you know, there's been this thing, and we talked about the Reese Hoskins. Um, like Odubel Herrera, like how people like react on, on Twitter to these two guys. It seems like Phillies fans are starting to run out of patience with Reese Hoskins. Um, and it's, it's intriguing to me. Like there's, there were a couple people out there yesterday and, uh, what's his name? I think it's like Leo Morgenstern had a tweet that like people started like liking. He writes for, I think the good fight. Um, I always like try to give credit where, where we can, and he still, he puts out like uh, WRC plus and like, you know, OPS dating back to last year and how Reese Hoskins, basically the thesis is, is still a really good major league hitter and he's still ultra productive and like, let's relax. It's May 9th or whatever. Um, and there are numbers that you can look to with Reese Hoskins where you say, yep, you know, over time he's shown that he has good plate discipline. He can draw walks. He can drive the baseball. He was on a 40 homer pace last year. I don't think there's ever been a player in my mind that, that I go back and forth on more than Reese Hoskins. There are times where I like I believe those numbers and I say, yeah, you know, he's and he's a good guy too, so it makes it easy. Yeah. Um, then there are times where I watch him and I just go, like, I'm sorry, like, you can't live and die by the streaks that you get with him. And I mean, he has been absolutely abysmal this season. And you look at the numbers as we wake up here after this Mets series, and the man's hitting 189 with a 638 OPS, his last 15 games. He's hitting 155 with a 478 OPS. And I'm sorry, like, will he have that run where he gets it together and, and gets hot and we all feel good about him again? Probably. probably. But, like, they, they've got to get more out of him, like, right now. Well, so, and, so here's a couple of things I want to talk about with Reese Hoskins. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you back to an episode we did a couple years ago um, to start it off. We had Ruben Amaro. On the show, if you remember, remember when we had Ruben on? Yes. Okay, and, and we talked. We talked a little bit about. We were talking about the team in general, blah blah blah, and you know what what they could do to to get better. And one of the suggestions was, can you move a player like Reese Hoskins? And Ruben said, "Well, that would be outside the box thinking. Um, it's not something you would consider." But I mean, you know, right off the cuff. But that would be outside the box thinking about how you can improve the team in another way. And so it was kind of interesting that, that that was the response that we got when he, when we when we asked him that question. And so when we're sitting here talking about the fact that the Phillies lacked the pitching depth, right? And I, this was something that 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 caught my eye yesterday. Game one, obviously Hoskins isn't playing. Did it surprise you a little bit that Bohm was at third and Camargo was at first, was and not first. the other way around? You think they're plotting something here? Well, in, I mean, no, the, well, I mean, so here's offering? so here's the thing. I mean, I'm just curious because. Because you know, obviously, we know Bohm can play first. Uh, he's probably I don't know is he better at third? <laughs> he's a, who knows? He's not a great defensive player, regardless where you play him. Um, obviously, Camargo can play all over the infield. We know Real Muto can play first if need be, and and you're gonna get him off his feet a little bit more. He's played a lot of games. He's played a lot of games. All right, all right. Yes. Because Harper has had a DH so much, Real Muto's caught more than they probably wanted him to. Now you can if if you think about it. Is there a market value right now, even though he's hitting as poorly as he is, is there a potential market value for Reese Hoskins right now that could get you 
something that you need like another starting pitcher or like a pitcher who at least can you know, serve in that role and maybe kind of swing back and forth to the bullpen or whatever the case might be. Because you have enough guys on your team who can do what Reese Hoskins already does, and he's got you know he's a he's a little bit more affordable, right? That, that he doesn't have doesn't have a big contract. Um, is that something you would consider at this point, Bob? If you had to, I mean, you're 12 and 16, and you're like, what the hell are we gonna do? Rather than fire the manager, which everybody says, fire Joe Girardi, fire Joe Girardi, and of course that could happen. That could certainly happen, right? If you if you need to really kind of shake up a room. But would there be no better way to shake up a room than to take a player that everybody likes out of the room? Well, there and, there and, could definitely be and get them going there could that definitely way. Definitely be something said for that. I I will agree with that. I you know and and as you were talking, I just wanted to to kind of go through this very quickly. I mean, the reason you didn't see Reese Hoskins against Max Scherzer, which you kind of just dismissed, right. which because we all know this, he's terrible against Max I, Scherzer. I get that. I get that. No, but I'm, and I'm, he's and I just I just I had a look. I just had a look. One for one for twenty six. Yeah, yeah. No, but, well, I'm not surprised that that was the game. No, no, I'm not surprised. That, I'm not surprised I, that's the game he sat. What I'm saying. I agree. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. And so then I look at it and I go, okay. So Alec Bone played third yesterday. You know, and and Camargo plays first. That's interesting. And I was just curious, like, because off of that, I'm like, well, why did Bone play? Was there something they saw? And I mean, he is now five for fifteen off of Scherzer, but that's after going two for three yesterday. Right. So. Like he had anything you know notable numbers against him where they'd say yeah what the hell let's roll it out there um which kind of goes back to your point like could there be something to that i i don't know but you're right i i think that there is a i think that there's a very convincing argument to do it and it's, it's i mean hell it's been something i've been talking about for two years right. I, I i'm a big believer that they should trade reese haskins and then people think i'm like being mean or that like I don't like the guy on a personal level I believe that this team needs a shake up I thought that the Castellanos and Schwarber signings would be the things that do it maybe ultimately they, they proved to be the things that do it but I, I don't think that Reese Hoskins makes a ton of sense as this Phillies roster is currently constructed and to go back to a conversation that we had two weeks ago he's not going to be here long term they've committed to Nick Castellanos they've committed to Kyle Schwarber they have committed to Bryce Harper they've committed to JT Realmuto Reese Hoskins is not a, a, you know, even an average defensive first baseman. They have all of these DHs all over the roster. He's not going to be here. Yeah, he's not. So to 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 me, he it here first. So to me, if you want to shake up a, a, a clubhouse in May, I, you know, you fire the manager. Of course, anytime you fire a coach or fire a manager, that always shake, you know, supposedly shakes up the room. But it also gives them an out, right? It's like, oh, well, they fired the manager. It wasn't our fault, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, they'll say they'll say things right pub- publicly. They'll say, well, yeah, you know, it's not wasn't Joe's fault. We needed to play better. You know, we we got to play better for whoever the new guy is, right? I mean, of course they're going to say the right things. But the fact of the matter is, when you really look at it, and they're sitting there out quietly in the room, and they're not talking to the media, they're sitting there going, yeah, well, they fired the manager. It wasn't our fault, obviously. So you know, it's his fault. <laughs> But you take a guy out of the room who everybody likes, who's been part of this team for so long, you know, and you and you say, all right, he's going. This is the move that we're making. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, who's next? If we don't fix this, who else? Who could be the next person to go? You know, I mean, and that's I think that kind of has more of an impact with players when they lose when they lose a teammate. Somebody that they're going out drinking with, or, or they room with on the road, or whoever the case, whatever the case might be, that kind of thing has a greater impact and, and changes the way guys play 
far more so than the firing of a coach or a manager does. And, and to yeah. me, there's no other player right now on this team who you could look at and say, we can move on from him. He has value. It can get us something and would shake up that room. I think it's a, I think it's a perfect storm right now. This would be the move to make. If, if maybe you don't give, maybe give it, maybe you give it this road trip, right? Maybe just give it Seattle, LA. And then if, if things are still not great after this weekend, or after next weekend, maybe that's the move you make instead of firing Well, it's interesting answer. because right now it's the easy thing to say because he's playing so poorly, whereas a month ago we would have said, if, if you can get something for Alec Boom, like, hey, you, you do that deal because, I mean, he's terrible defensively and he's not hitting and he's just a mess. And now here here's Alec Boom putting together a really strong 2022, and whereas he was, in, he was tied to, we know this for a fact, was tied to trade rumors in March uh, because I think that, that the fact that they even had those conversations is an acknowledgement of, like, this roster isn't settled. There, there is. This is not the finished product of this roster. It's not the ideal makeup of a roster, right. and they know it. And the fact that they talked about Boehm, I, I, I think, would let you know that. It indicates it. So now, fast forward a month, and you start to say, like, well, could it be Hoskins? And and so if you're a Phillies fan right now, and you're listening to this, and you're like, ah, stop, come on, Reese, it's Reese. He's a centerpiece of the organization. Like, I'm not so sure about that. And you know, maybe the Phillies ultimately end up trading Boom, but like when I say, like he's not going to be here, Hoskins. Well, I can tell you right now, with those signings that they've made, the guys I mentioned, Real Muto, the corner outfielders, or you know the DHs that they signed this offseason, Hoskins and Boom, they're not going to both be on this team come 2024. They're not. They're just not. Yeah. So maybe get out ahead of it because it's not working right now, and do something about it. Yeah, I mean, and maybe maybe you look to maybe you look to find some, you know, maybe it looks to work somewhere with a team that. Another team that's struggling that maybe they didn't think they were going to be struggling, you know. So, maybe you look like maybe maybe you seriously maybe you look at somewhere like like Boston, for example, right? Yeah, what a what a mess! What a mess that has been. <laughs> yeah. Probably the the only bigger surprise than than really the Phillies at this point is the, you know in terms of teams with some expectations not playing well, it's the Red Sox ten and nineteen. Yeah, yeah, uh, they've, been, they've been terrible. Hey, now listen, just for the sake of of kind of you know keeping it within an hour, which we've now just pushed over as I look at the clock. You got, you got three on the road here with the Mariners. And then you have obviously the four with the Dodgers and, and you can't expect that to go particularly well. uh, At least the Dodgers series. Now here's the thing with the Mariners. They got off to a pretty good start this season, but they're two and eight in their last 10 games. They're still eight and five at home. Uh, Two things that, that, you know, I would say the Mariners are not a great baseball team. I've never really had them pegged as a, you know, a true contender or anything of that nature, but the Phillies have to go out West. They have to play a team that is still over 500 at home. And the Phillies, since Joe Girardi has been the manager of this team are 47 and 72 on the road, as I pointed out on Twitter after the game last night. And they're, uh, you know, I actually triple checked it just to make sure I was doing my math correctly. So yes, they are 25 games under 500 under Joe Girardi on the road. So I cannot with any conviction or confidence say that the Phillies are going to go out and turn it around against the Mariners this week. They might, but when you consider their starting pitching instability, some of the question marks they have, the fact that they have just played with a general lack of anything now for 28 games, I don't feel great about it. How do you feel? Yeah, well, I mean, can you feel great about anything with this team right now? I mean, you really can't. I mean, if you want to try and take the optimistic view, the optimistic view is you take is is you're going up against a team that can't hit. Hey, they just they can't hit. I mean, they got Ty France is like the one guy that hits. And Crawford, JP Crawford's having a great year, great start to his season. Um, but other than that, there's <laughs> nobody in their lineup that hits. No one. Now they got two young kids who are going to be stars down the road, 
who are really struggling early. That's the Rodriguez, Julio Rodriguez, and, and Jared Kalenic. Um, they both have they both been struggling there. The guys they picked up from the Reds have been a disaster so far. And Winker and Suarez, um, you know, they don't have player. I mean, they just don't have a lineup. Their lineup is just is bad. So you have to be able to hit against their pitching, which is they have good pitching, right? So you got Robbie Ray and Logan Gilbert and. You know, Flexen pitched a nice game the other day. Marco Gonzalez. I mean, so the, I don't know who I haven't looked at who the actual pitching matchups are, but those are the, those are the game those are the pitchers that you're probably going to face. At least three of those guys, right? Um, you have to be able to find a way to hit those guys. Um, and if you can hit their starting pitching and you can get out on this team, there's no reason you can't win two or three in Seattle or all three in Seattle. There's no reason you can't. This is, but then again, I we I sat here a week ago and said there's no reason you can't win both games against yeah, Texas at home. Absolutely. You're, you're actually getting what I would consider to be basically the Mariners' best shot. You're going to get Flexen tonight, who's been pretty good, even though he's 1-4. Robbie Ray has been very average, but, you know, he's a dangerous pitcher. He can strike some guys out. Yeah. And you get Logan Gilbert, who's been awesome on Wednesday. So yeah. it's it's not an easy setup at the very least, I, I think would be fair to say. And, you know, then you go out and you look ahead and you say, well, you got to deal with the Dodgers. And I don't have to explain to you that the Dodgers are good. But when you then see that they have a plus 74 run differential, uh, you know, which is, uh, I think, better than any other team. The second best team by 24 runs right. this season. Right. I think number two is the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the Yankees. Yeah. So even there, they're, they're still 26 runs ahead of them in run differential. Uh, they're 10 and two at home. And they've won seven out of their last three, and they're nineteen and seven overall. And the Phillies can't win on the road. So that is all to kind of make the point that now here they are sitting at twelve and sixteen. They have seven games out west. I will tell you that if I were a betting man, I would take them to go two and five. I, I think that's where I'm at this morning. Well, maybe, well, the, maybe one, they... the one thing I will say though is this: with the Dodgers, is at least you're throwing your pitchers that have been pitching well. You assuming assuming Wheeler can get back by the weekend. I mean, look. I mean, COVID the COVID list. I mean, what you know, know. what is COVID anymore? It's five days, right? I mean, so I mean, it's not it's not like it's something ridiculous. So if, if you assume you can get Wheeler back for one of the games against the against the Dodgers, you're going to be able to throw you're Nola right. Wheeler Gibson um, and. And as I pointed out at the beginning of the show, they don't win when those guys pitch. No, I, so I know, but 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 at least gives you a chance. So you're not going to sit there and say, well, you say, well they're going to go two and five. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, I get it. They're not going, they, uh, you know. They have a better chance. I, to I guess in this rotation, Eflin, uh, you know, six starter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I get, yeah. I get your so point. So they have a, to right. me, they have a better Absolutely. chance. They, to me, they have a better chance of splitting that series than they otherwise would have. Yeah. Right. That's, I, I, that's how I I'm look at you. it. So that's why, that's why I look at, it and I say, okay, you're going to play them set. They're going to next seven games on this road trip, three in Seattle, four in the Dodgers. If you, if you go, if you go four and three, you're, you're good. You're good with it. Yeah, if you go four and three, oh my God, you'd have to be to the moon if they go four and three. That's I think what that, I think it like, has you to be. Would say, I think if you look at this though, I mean, if you had to bet on this, if odds were set, would they finish plus or, o- or under 500 on over the next seven games? You'd, you'd probably, have to take under or at least under would be the favorite under would, line, under, right? under would be the favorite yes it would be the so favorite. Just, just let's just say for the sake of argument it plays out that way just to project ahead here if they go three and four over the next seven games you're looking at 15 and 20 when you wake up next monday morning and if it's worse than that you're looking at 14 and 21, 21? yeah i mean oh yeah, you can't have it you can't have it no it can't be that way bob it just can't and that's what happens when you lose uh you know two out of three to the mets and get swept by the rangers in a two-game set you knew that this was going to be a tough week which has since gotten tougher because of the starting pitching uncertainty 
and you've left yourself very little wiggle room. And that is the reality of the 2022 Phillies right now. And, you know, we can all sit here and say, like, they'll hit better and the ball will probably change. And when it gets warmer out, the strength of the team will be more pronounced. And I think that that's all reasonable. Yeah. But unfortunately, they are digging themselves a hole right now where even if those things happen, you start to say, like, it doesn't matter. And and I can't believe that, you know, you're sitting here in May kind of going, like, this team is trending towards, holy crap, you know, territory. And I don't, don't tell me about the 2019 Nationals and their 19 and 29 start. Like, there have been more teams that have started 19 and 29 that have gone on to do absolutely nothing than there have been that have turned it around and flipped the switch and went on crazy win streaks. And, oh, by the way, the Phillies have never shown any ability whatsoever to do that outside of last summer for, like, 10 minutes. Yeah, no, you're you're 100 correct. You are 100 so correct. Back, well, it's early, and you, people are panicking. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, like I've watched plenty of baseball. I cover it professionally. Yeah, I think if you're a Phillies fan this morning and you're like, oh shit, you're entitled to feel like, oh shit. Yeah, you should, you should, but at the, but, you know, but you have to. Yeah, at the same time, you know, you, you can't just blow. You can't can't just say, and it's gonna. This is gonna lead into my one last thing, which is actually ties into Philadelphia. Usually it doesn't, but t- today it does. And I, I'm finally, I finally had enough, and I'll, I'll explain what it is in a minute. But <laughs> you, you, you can't. You, you're right. You can be oh shit, but I don't think you could sit there and be like, well, it's all over. No, I'm not saying cancel the season, but I do yeah, think it, like yeah, you're not being pessimistic by taking a realistic approach at this and, and a realistic look at this. Fair enough. No, I, you're 100 yeah. percent right, and I do not do not disagree with you at all on that. You absolutely can take a pessimistic view of it. You can be concerned. You should be concerned, but at the same time, it's not it's not time to completely panic yet. That's all. That's you. all I'm saying. I'm with you. Here's my one last thing on that on that vein in that vein. I've had enough of Michael Barkan. <laughs> Bob, this I, is my guy. You know, I, I've had enough. And look, I know Michael. Okay, Michael is a great guy. He really is. He's a phenomenal human being. He's a wonderful person. I've had enough of his shtick on TV. I I get more mad at Michael Barkan after a game than I do at anything that's happened with the Phillies. And it's because. Hold on. Would it be better if if I hold this bat in my hand and give you my analysis (laughs) post game? But it's it's not it's not that. It's Do not, I look like I know what I'm talking about now it, because I'm holding this back? Look, look, the the, the the analysts are what they are, right? I mean, Ricky Bowes got his shtick, and um, you know, I actually I like Ruben the best of all of them, and, and a lot of people don't like Ruben, but I think Ruben's the most honest of everybody. Um, if, you know, I, I do like when they throw with the Cruck when he's in the booth. I think Cruck's pretty honest when he's in the booth as well. Ben Davis is just kind of milk toast to me, but Barkan is I. It's it's one extreme or the other. There cannot be any analysis, any questions that are geared to these guys. And he's the guy that's running the program, and that's what's, that's why I get pissed off. Because you should take each game for what it is. And so to sit there and say, you know, oh, this is a great win. This is exactly what they needed. This is fantastic. Ricky Bo, how awesome is this? Well, it's not necessarily awesome. It was a win. You know, oh, this is the most terrible loss ever. This team stinks. Where are they? Where, they're falling out of the wild card. He was talking about the wild card race the other day. The freaking wild card race, Bob. It's May. There's more teams going to be in the wild card this year than, than ever before, with the exception of 2020, obviously, because of, of the shortened season. But, I mean, 
Three. And they're what, like three, twelve, and thirteen yeah, at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like, I mean, are you kidding me? We can't start talking about the wild card. I mean, come on, man. I mean, let's just can we just well, can we just break it down? Can we have a real conversation about the game? We can look at the positives. We can look at the negatives. Whatever you want, that's fine. But we don't need it to be the life or death, you know, angle to every freaking game. It drives me insane. Fix it, I, I totally agree with you, and uh, I've I've often called the show Philly's Fake Outrage Live, uh, <laughs> which I've also called it Sixers Fake Outrage Live. Although Amy Fadul's the host of that show and, and does a, a good job yeah. of it, um, doesn't bring that same uh, insanity. But the Eagles, it's, it's same thing. It's what you're talking about, but on steroids. Yes, I mean, it's, yes. it's absolutely crazy. Every loss is the, just a, an indictment of the franchise, whereas every win is like, here come the Eagles to win the the Super Bowl. Yeah, um, and. Over 162, it's 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 nauseating to watch, and I totally agree with you. And I've been critical of him on Twitter because uh, it's been my experience uh, last year a couple times. There were things that I had tweeted that like just happened to come out of his mouth or like his Twitter account like moments later, and I just found it to be almost a statistical impossibility that we were just both on the same wavelength like that. But different story. I'm with you. I do feel a little bit of uh, like a little bit like I'm I'm contradicting myself or being hypocritical if I. I mean, I just basically told you this team is in a lot of trouble. So for me to then pounce on him for doing the same thing, it's it's kind of a weird look. But I will tell you that he does it every game, all the time. Game three, game 105, game 142, it's the same thing yeah. over and over again. And he's a smart guy and he knows sports. And he, I much like Angelo Cataldi, I suspect he knows exactly what he's doing. Oh, of course he does. Of course he knows what he's doing. Of course, and that's what frustrates me even more. And that's why I said to you, that's why I, I started it off with, you know, I know Michael, and I think he's a great guy. Newhouse, journalistic. Yeah, and I think he's a great guy. And I think, you know, if you go back over his career, he's done some great stuff. And he used to be, like, he was never like this. Do you remember when Daily News Live was on? And he was sure, the host great. of that, right? You know, that back then. He was, he was a facilitator. Yeah. And he basically let the, the, the other people who were on the show kind of dictate the emotion of the conversation, yeah. right? Would challenge when needed. Right. Uh, would follow up when needed. He was great. It was, it was a great show. It was really good. Growing up, I mean, that was, if you wanted to be in Philadelphia sports media, you know, probably one of the reasons you wanted to was because you watch those guys talk on that show and said, this is awesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so we know he can do it. We know he's good at that. So the question is, and it, maybe it's not, and this is why I'm talking to, not talking directly to Michael to fix it. I'm talking to NBC to fix it because I think this is a directive from above them. That this is what NBC wants. NBC thinks that we that everybody wants to watch the talking heads like the Stephen A's and the and the uh, you know and those guys, and that they want that on a game by game basis. And I don't necessarily I, think I'm that's the you. case. I, I totally, I'm with you. But then I watched I watched it last night, and I rarely do. And so maybe I'm wrong about this. But I did watch the post game show for ten minutes last night on the Sixers. I don't know if it's just the personnel on the set just doesn't can't can't kick into that panic mode gear all the time. But the Sixers show doesn't really do that. The Eagles one, oh my God. And then the Phillies, it's it's more ridiculous with the Phillies because there's six games a week. Yeah. Because we're in April and May. That being said, like, you know, you can be critical and you should be. And like, sometimes Ricky Bell, like after the game on Thursday night, people were like, I can't wait to see Ricky Bell. And like, hell yeah, man. Like there's a time and place to, 
You watch a team go for game after game. There's a time and place to just rip them to shreds. There is. But, I, but I'll tell you, as someone, that, like, I'll tell that end of the world sky is falling thing after every yeah, single you're right. game. You're right. I'll but I, well. and here's where I'll give Ricky Bo a little bit of credit. And now, and Friday night I think was a perfect example. Okay. He he was critical and he was a little scorched earth and everything like that. How horrible the loss it was, whatever. But he did offer a perspective that no one else would offer. And I felt, felt was fair. And he said, I have no problem with going to a guy like Nelson in that spot in the, in the bullpen because every manager in baseball is going to want to save their guys. They have, a, they have three more games in the series, right, coming up against a big series. You don't want to burn your, your, your closer. You don't want to burn your setup guys. You want to go with someone further down the, the, the food chain in the, in the bullpen to try and get you through a six-run lead in the ninth inning. Every manager in baseball would do the same thing. And he said, and I've been in Corey Kniebel's spot before where the guy does not do the job in front of you. You've, you've already shut it down. You're the closer. You've probably already shut it down for the night mentally. Right. You're not going into this game. And then all of a sudden you've got to get ready and you've got to warm up and you're just not prepared because you've already shut it down mentally. You've won the game 7-1. to one. It's, it's going to be over in 10 minutes. So you're not ready. And so when Kniebel comes in and Kniebel gets hit, it's because he's just not prepared for it because he's not ready because that's what that's and, – and, and, and Ricky Bo's explaining this. So he's giving you good, valuable information as to why you can't necessarily blame the manager or you can't necessarily blame the closer for blowing it in that spot, but at the same time saying you can't lose this game. So, right. you know what I'm saying? Like he, he's putting it on the group effort saying you just can't let it happen, but at the same time understands why it did. And why it ha- why it happened with the people that it was. Yeah, well, you get no argument for me on that. Uh, you know, I mean, I like and listen. Uh, wrap that up by saying, like, I, I agree with you. I like Ricky Bo too. Like, he brings a. I, he, ultimately, the show is for the fans, and the fans want to throw the remote through the television at the end of the night. And so you want, unlike your manager, you want to see a little anger. You want to see someone say, "Yeah, you know that sucked, and you should be upset." And it resonates with the viewer, but when it when it's every single night, it, it becomes disingenuous, and that therein lies the problem with the show. That's the job of an analyst, not the job of the host. Yeah. And that's why I have a problem with Barcamp being that way. Yeah. That's just me. Well, there you go. I, it's not just you, actually. <laughs> so I'll say, I'll say that. And on that note, we will close it down, and we will be back later this week uh, once the Phillies wrap up. I guess uh, with the Mariners, and then just depending on schedules, it'll either be a a Thursday show or a Friday show. So we will be back one more time uh, before the Phillies wrap up this West Coast swing. Important week, as they all are when you are 12 and 16 now uh, for the Phillies, and we'll see if they can kind of stabilize this thing moving forward. Uh, Either way, we will be back uh, soon, and uh, we will talk to you then. Make sure that you're following the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, anywhere else uh, that you get your podcasts. Check us out on YouTube as well where this show will be, and we will talk to you guys later this week.